right, so you guys find your way to 2 Samuel chapter 24. All right, so here we go. You get the tape. So, you guys, we've been studying David's life for a uh, hundred years. And we're finally at the last chapter of 2 Samuel. It's not really the last chapter of his story. His story bleeds a little bit into, do you know where, what comes after Samuel in the narrative? Uh, what is it? Kings, okay. And then you guys know how kings and chronicles relate. It gets a little bit confusing. But we could continue here. We're not going to continue on this whole story. We might do like one more week. We'll see how far we get this. We'll see how far we get now. But we're going to be in the last chapter of 2 Samuel. And it's, it's a doozy too. There's, there's a whole bunch of strange things that are going down. But we're going to pick it up. 2 Samuel chapter 24. And we're going to read verse 1. Here's what it says. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he incited David against them saying... Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Okay? So, this is weird. There's a whole bunch of... La- this is going to take a little while to peel back here. In order to bring judgment against Israel, God, it says, incited David to take a census of Israel and Judah. Okay? Well, this raises so many different questions. But let's start with the first one. What does it mean that God incited David? Have you guys ever... Well, first of all, what's weird about this? Okay, wait, first Bob, then Kat. Say it, Bob. Okay, so is it saying that God is compelling David to do something bad and then punishing him for having done it? That's, that's super weird. Okay, Kat, what were you saying? <laughs> How come God is mad again? You <laughs> That's so funny. And with a little bit of edge in your voice. Like, man, this is so funny. All right, you guys pray for Kat that she doesn't get killed on the way home. Okay. Um, so what does it mean, you guys, that David is inciting, I'm just, that God is inciting David? Meaning, is he prompting him? Is he compelling him? Is he tempting him? Is he, what is he doing that, to make David do this thing? Okay, first Stuart, then Kelly. Okay, so we're gonna get to we're gonna get to the, we'll get to the like what's up with the census itself, okay, and why is that a bad thing? Well, we'll unpack that in a minute. But yeah, it's so so Stuart just said a naughty word. He said maybe God is just tempting him. But Bob just said that God doesn't tempt anyone. So James, Bob says that James said that Stuart is wrong. Okay, so maybe I don't know. What do we do with that, Kelly? Did you want to add something? Okay, so we're gonna make it even worse. Okay. So what, what, listen, to what, Kelly's going to make it worse. How is she going to do that? Go ahead, babe. Did you, wait, did you hear what she said? Satan incites, in, in, in the Chronicles account, which is a parallel of, of 2 Samuel, it does not say that God incited David to take a census against Israel. It specifically and explicitly and unambiguously says that Satan incited David to take a census of Israel. Okay, wait, say say that again, Robin.
That's exactly. So in, in 2 Samuel, it is Yahweh who incites David to take a census of Israel. And in Chronicles, it is Satan who incites David to take a census of Israel. Okay, so hang on. We'll, we'll, we'll start to resolve it once we're all super unhappy about everything. Okay? So... Okay, so you've got, you, you, there's, these are two, first of all, you've got, what is God doing seemingly tempting or tricking or like, what, what is that? And then, oh, does it, did it just get better or worse? We're like, oh, no, 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 it wasn't the Lord, it was the devil. Although we actually just said it was the Lord, so it's both. This is all very strange. Brenda, did you want to make it worse too? Same thing Kelly did. Okay, they bring in this whole Satan thing. Zach? Okay, not tempting, but testing does. So if God does not tempt, does he test? I think. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so we do, we, we do see this. And this is, a, this is a good observation. John? Yes. Okay, so John's, there's a couple of key observations John makes. Number one is uh, we see in the book of Job that whatever Satan wants to do, he has to get permission to do it. And God says, you know, you can do this, but you can't touch him. Or you can touch him, but you can't kill him. He draws these boundaries. And sometimes the boundaries are like, man, I may, maybe I wish you wouldn't have done that. Um, but it's true. You, could, you see the same thing with, with when Jesus has this little conversation with Peter. And he says, Peter... Satan has, and I think most translations use the word demanded. Satan has demanded to sift you as wheat. Do you recall this? And it's like in the same way that Satan is acting against Job, Satan has come and said, hey, I want to mess with Peter. And God says, okay, all right, you can go this far, but no further. So there's some sense in that. I think what that, that can help us do is, whereas you might think that what Satan does and what God does are like as opposite as you could be, and it's a terrible thing to confuse these two parties. In fact, the Bible teaches that 100% of what Satan does, he does under the authority, under, within the prescribed limits of God. That God will give him leash and no further, right? Which may feel strange to you, but is what the scriptures teach. Okay, Robin? Okay, so Robin is saying, so whatever, whatever God is doing, he allows things for, his, for his, our good, his glory. And we may not be able to make sense of it all, but he, this is a ru routinely seen, right? And it's true. It's troubling to us. It's maybe surprising, but I think there's strong evidence for it. Okay. Yeah, Griffin? I think that's an apt summary. Right? I feel like he was pretty loud here. But just, just to, that we see, and we're going to look at a couple of these, multiple places in Scripture, that God is very comfortable 
using evil men to accomplish a good end, right? And it's a good thing because what else is he going to work with, you know? Like, I mean, it is, we're, we're troubled. Like, why did God use this evil thing? Well, I don't know. Why did he use you? Like, he's always working through our mixed motives or badness or brokenness, whatever he does. Sometimes it's rather pointed. And we'll, there's a few examples of that we're going to look at. Okay, first Catherine, and then we'll come back to, to Lily. Okay, so you're thinking of, yeah, in Genesis 50. Yes, okay, and we'll, we'll, probably, we'll come back to this as a recap of the whole thing, but Catherine's jumping to the end of the story here. This is exactly right. There is there's this really significant moment in the life of Joseph, right? So Joseph gets sold away into slavery. He's given over to death. He's, you know, he gets, he's accused of rape. He is put in prison. He is forgotten. All of this terrible stuff happens, all of this stuff, where his brothers betray him, where Potiphar's wife lies about him, all this stuff. And when it's all said and done, the result of all of it is that Joseph is ascends to the right hand of the king. And, he seats in a, and he's seated in a position of authority where he can bless and provide for the people of God. And in that reflection, I think it's verse 20. It's definitely Genesis 50. It might be 50-20. You can look it up if I'm wrong. He, he makes his famous statement. The brothers all come cowering before him because they're like, oh, now that our brother's the king and now that our dad is dead, Joseph's going to cut off our heads. And Joseph is gracious to them, and he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the salvation of many people. And Joseph is able, even though he is the center of the pain, he's able to say, God, you worked through your wickedness to accomplish a good end. And that really, that's, at the end of the day, that, that crystallizes, Catherine, that God routinely works through sinful people, and hear this, through sin itself to accomplish a good end, right? And there is, well, we'll save this for the end, okay? Uh, Lily. That's all true. So Lily, Lily's just observing. There's other examples where God accomplishes what he does through these intermediaries. And it's necessarily the case that his intermediaries are sinful. There's like he has, literally, there's no other tools that he can use apart from sinful people. And so sometimes it is attributed directly to those intermediaries. But sometimes the scriptures will point us higher and say, no, no, but he was behind it all. Which is admittedly uncomfortable. Here's a few. I'll, get, I'll read you some of the most pointed examples of this, okay? I just... Listen to this. This is 1 Kings. You can move, move here if you want or not. 1 Kings 22. Listen to this, how strange this is. Um, therefore, this is 22, 1 Kings 22, 19. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the host of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. Now, first thing you got to notice here, this is a strange insight. 
the Old Testament, a couple different spots, pictures God like you might think of the president and his cabinet, right? This host of heaven is like his cabinet, this collection of rulers, these spiritual leaders, other angelic beings. Uh, and he's like having a conference. What should we do about this? It's just like you think like Abraham Lincoln and his, you know, and his cabinet. So here's Yahweh. And he says, he asked this question. The Lord said, who will entice, same word, right? Incite, not the same word, similar idea. Inside, who will entice? Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord asked, by what means? I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. So now the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Isn't that super strange? Super weird. Okay, here's another one. This is strange. Second Thess 2.11. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. That's strange. Second Thess 2 Thess 2.11. God sends a delusion so that they will believe the lie. Habakkuk 1.6. How about this one? I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. You guys, it would be as if God says, like, I am using North Korea, my chosen instrument, to go in and, like, just eradicate America. And you'd be like, whoa, Habakkuk is all about how are you using someone more wicked to swallow up someone more righteous, and they're doing this, and you're, 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 you're approving them. You're, you're, what is up with that, right? So there's delusion, there's empowering these, and then there's this. Listen to this one. This one might be familiar to you, but I don't know if you've ever thought of it in these terms. Acts 4.26, the kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Well, do you recognize that, by the way? That's Acts 4, but what's that from? Psalm, which one? Psalm 2, baby. I love that. Psalm 2. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did, these wicked people, in wretched sin, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. What he's saying is that that idea that you, they meant it for evil, but you meant it for good, that's, that phenomena is exactly what was happening on the cross. The cross was the most unjust moment in human history, and it was directed by God. He had decided by his will and his power beforehand what should happen. And so even if you're like, man, what's up with this thing about inciting the sensitive? So what is up with this thing about you know being a lying prophet, you know, a lying tongue in the mouths of the prophets. You guys, the centerpiece of your faith, the cross of Jesus Christ is the, is the pinnacle example of God using wicked people to accomplish a good end, nevertheless at, at his direction. Does that make sense? So this is not some weird little splinter thing. This is the center, centerpiece for us is to think about this. So let's just, that's the problem. So how, how is it just for God to do this? All right, no more problems, only solutions. What do we, how do, what do we make of this? 
that God would use wicked people to accomplish a good end under his control. Right, right? There's nothing else that he can use, right? That's all that he has to work with is us. It's absolutely true. Yes, yes, Chris? Okay, wait, I'll do that again. Say it again. If you were to make something new, uh-huh. or then some of those other traits... Make a new, a clean version. Right, right. You could eradicate us, and we don't want some people saying. Yeah. And he, I, I would argue, and Chris Watts, who I would suggest to you, or would be suggested, saying that his first creation was bad. Okay, gotcha, 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 gotcha. Okay, so not only does he have nothing else to work with, but it would be, there'd be some problem with him creating something new to work with, making a new clean version of this. That he is, in some, le- some level, obligated to use the world that he made, lest he admit that there was some failing or some flaw in that. Okay, I think that's interesting reasoning. Let's, let's get a couple more ideas and I'll try to tell you what I think is going on. Yep. Okay. Okay, so it's true that we, well, and I would, I would quibble with you on the free will. I think once the fall occurred, we really lost our freedom of will. Not that we're slaves to Satan, I mean slaves to God, but we're slaves to sin, right? So we have a tendency, we, we like to congratulate ourselves on having a free will, but the scriptures don't actually affirm this. That what they affirm is that we're slaves. We're not free, we're slaves. We're not slaves to God, we're slaves to sin. And I think that is a really important piece. I'll come back to that. I'll give a couple more folks a chance to jump in and then I'll go for some more. Griffin? Yes, okay. This is excellent, Griffin. His, so his, God, God, has, God is exercising. We are so incompetent at using evil to accomplish a good end, right? Because we ourselves are in this evil. But God is so brilliant, so above it, that he has a way to do it. There's a particular way that he does it. We'll get to that in a second. That he uses sin to accomplish his end, okay? Couple of, and I may not be able to call on everybody because I want to talk to you. So, Catherine. So he is. So, so what we can affirm entirely, and we should affirm, that God is. That none, of, none of these passages we're looking at cause us to question, should cause us to question, the goodness of God. He is good. He is holy. He is just. He is everything delightful and positive. Here's what he's doing. Here's what he's not doing, okay? In every one of these instances, he is allowing people that are already bad, that already have a propensity to, be, to do bad things, to simply do as they will, right? He's never saying, you know what, you're holy. You know, Anna, you're just so sweet. You're just doing such a great job. Zamo! We're going to make you do bad things. He doesn't do that. In every instance, the Babylonians, they wanted 
to show up and to wipe out Israel, right? This king here in 1 Kings, Ahab, he loved having people tickle his ears and say false things to him. And his prophets, they loved currying favor with the king, right? They loved getting before him and being like, let me say the words that you're going to like and so you'll like, you know, give me some advantage. You'll pet me in some way, right? What God is always doing is he takes wicked people and the phrase that Paul uses in Romans is he gives them over. That he doesn't say, you are going to be good today, but I'm going to make you be bad today. He never does that. Rather, he says, okay, fine, as you wish. And he allows us in our selfishness and our sin and our broken strategies to just do what we're going to do. If he doesn't restrain our, I don't know if you experienced this, but God is constantly restraining sin. Like all the time, right? And he has a whole bunch of levers that he can pull to do this, right? What are some of the things in your life, what's, what, can, what restrains your sin? Like, let's get a couple practical things that in, for you, for you, for you. What keeps you from just like wanton ruination of your life? Lily? Okay, very good. So there may be things you want to say, things you want to do, but you like, you just run the math and you're like, you know what, if I do that, there'll be downstream consequences that I won't like. And the fear of consequence right, whether it's your own suffering or the suffering of somebody you care about, limits you, right? You experience this. Yes? I think about Ephesians 5, 22. Okay. God's design for marriage is that God doesn't, doesn't allow the use of glory to go off. Right, okay. So for you, so you read God's word, and he, he says to you, love your wife like Christ loves the church. And you're like, oh, I wasn't going to do that, but okay. Right? And that, and that, right? Anyone else? Right? And you're like, oh, that's right. So you're reminded. So God's word is alive. Right? His spirit is alive. To be like, hey, stop. Right? And it constrains what you otherwise would have done. Right? Yep. Yes. So there's somebody else that speaks. In. Have you ever had somebody be like, oh, no, 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 don't do that. Has that ever happened to you? And you're like, okay, thank you, because I was absolutely going to do that, right? This is um, fear of punishment. Some of you specifically have not done some horrible thing because you didn't want to go to jail, right? Some of you might really like to cheat on your taxes because those money-grubbing, right? But then you're like, but I don't know, they just added like 200,000 IRS agents, so I won't. And that's, that's a real thing, right? You're constrained by... Fear of punishment. Yep. Okay. So the, the real practical reality, you've maybe in your life you've ever hurt somebody and you remember how much you hated that. And so you think, I don't want to do that again because I hated the way that felt when I saw them be crestfallen. I don't want to do that. Right? There's all sorts of things. Now, all of these things, Catherine, we'll ask one. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So there's all sorts of things that God does to restrain our sin. And has it ever happened that those things were missing? Has it ever been like, all we got to do is, I don't need to compel you to do something selfish. All I have to do is just get out of the way. And you're just going to roll down the hill. 
right? So it's, it's helpful to think of yourself as being like a wheel on a hill. And if there's not a chalk underneath that wheel, I don't need to give you a push. It's just going to happen. Like the gravity is always in effect, right? And if you think of your fallen nature as being like gravity, we need a wing to keep you in the air. We need a chalk to keep you from rolling down. And if I pull you up, pull out the chalk, you're just going down, right? And that's what we see. God does this all the time. He does, he's not compelling righteous people to become unrighteous. He's just letting us do what we otherwise were going to do. And he talks about explicitly. If you go back, we won't, take, for the sake of time, we won't look at it in Romans. But look at the opening chapters of Romans. Romans 1 and ended Romans 2. Where he keeps using the phrase, God gave them over. God gave them over. He didn't make them more. He was like, all right, have at it. As you wish. And then things spin into greater levels of pain. So this is what I think this is what he's doing. He does it seemingly with some frequency, right? But he's so wise and he's so righteous that he can do it perfectly. And he can work through all of this corruption of man and then end up with the good end of Joseph. All of this corruption and wickedness of, of the Jewish leadership and the Roman leadership and all, you know, all the various motives. And then we end up with the redemption of the world accomplished through the wretchedness of man. And this is what he's been doing the whole time. Okay? That's verse 1. Ready? All right, let's keep going. So, verse 2. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men, so that I may know how many there are. But Joab's like, whoa, no. He says, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, and so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. Have you ever had your boss have a bad idea? And you're like, whoa, no, no, no. And your boss is like, do it. Okay. That's what just happened here, right? Okay. Now here's the thing. Why does Joab know that this is a bad idea? Okay, but here's the, here's the problem. Uh, Jennifer's saying it's something they weren't supposed to count. Here's, the, here's what's wrong with this, though. Look, if you go to Exodus 30, verse 12, it says this. When you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he's counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. Specifically plagues and census. How about this? Numbers. The, do you know why numbers is called numbers? The whole thing is about a census. The, the first thing that happens in the book of numbers is they take a census. Like, hey, how many of you are there? And then a bunch of stuff happens. And then at the end of the book, they're like, let's count again and let's just see. Numbers is about the census results of two different census. That's what it is. And so in Numbers 1-2, it says, take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man by name, one by one. And in Numbers 26-2, it says, take a census of the whole Israelite community by families, all those 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army of Israel. So what on earth is wrong with taking a census? He's been com there, there have been literally commands to take a census. Do you see why this is a strange passage? Everything in this is weird. Is it God? Is it Satan? Does God use wickedness? Are we busted for not doing this? Is everything about this is odd. So what's up? Why can't David take a census if you can clearly take a census? Where, who's talking right now? Robin? Paying this ransom thing. 
Yeah. Okay, so Robin's thing is, well, maybe is it is the problem that David wasn't obey Oh, something just changed. What just happened? There we go. Um, that David wasn't obeying this thing in Exodus 30, right? Exodus 30 says, when you take a census, um, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. So maybe you can't take a census, you just have to do it right, and he didn't do this right. That, that's, that's a reasonable thesis, or at least it's a, you know, maybe that's a theory we can, we can chase. Gary? Yes. Okay. This is great. And so, there are there are plenty of things. Sometimes, so I am not a moral relativist. I'm a very much a moral absolutist. But it doesn't follow from being a moral absolutist that everything is always right, and other things are all, that anything is always right and anything is always wrong. Circumstances really do matter, right? There might be a circumstance in which I could slap Zach in the face, right? I can't think of what it is, but there might be. Right? You know, he's, he's, he's passed out. We've got to wake him up, right? There might be a circumstance. This isn't a good time to do that, right? But sometimes you're allowed to do an action under one circumstance, but not in another, right? Okay, so maybe he didn't, and not only, does he, not only is he going ahead, but Joab is specifically saying, whoa, 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 time out, time out. But David's in that mode, right, where he's like, shut up. I don't want to hear it. I'm going to do what I want to do. That possible? Yep, Carlton? Yes, absolutely. Okay, good. So let's pull on that. So what would be going on there? What would, what would, what would, if that's the case, if the purpose of the census is to count not just noses but swords, why would, why would that be a problem? Okay. Okay, great. So now we're, now we're getting into not just what you do, but is really what's going on here why you're doing it, right? And Carlton is suggesting that, well, maybe the issue was like, he's just counting noses because it's just fun to be a bigger king, right? To have a better army, to be arrogant. It's possible. This, this is all we're doing is we're all speculating. Yes. Kelly, you want to throw something on there? Okay, this, I think, and I think we're going we're gonna to move on from it because this is, this is, I think this is the ultimate thing, you guys. Are you allowed to take a census? Yes. There's times where they're commanded to. Are there manners in which you must do it? Yes. But really, what is the motivation, right? And it could be, there is a motivation, maybe a motivation of, you know, just pride and I want to do this. But it's also, David has, how many years has he been king? David has absolutely survived and thrived and been successful because the Lord was with him. Incident after incident after incident. He was constantly in these situations that Kelly mentions, like where Saul's coming around the mountain and David's coming around the mountain. Right here, Saul gets a phone call and he leaves, you know. 
absolutely. It's endlessly David is succeeding because God is with him. It's never because David is so great. He's always like inquiring of the Lord and he's speaking this thing. And then now you get a little bit of a sense of he's like, you know what? Hey, uh, Yahweh, thanks so much, but I got it from here. Well, I think I got it from here. How many people do we have? And he's going to go count all his noses and swords, perhaps. And I think this is the most likely answer so that he doesn't have to trust him anymore. Do you know this feeling? I, I was at a, I've been to 9,000 Christian conferences when I was on staff with Crusade. And there was one guy, I may have mentioned this to you before. One guy spoke at a conference. And a, I don't know how many talks I have heard in a conference setting. But the one thing that I remember most vividly of 500 messages, what this guy is saying is that when you are trusting the Lord, you want him to provide for you so that you don't have to trust him anymore. And that made me so mad. And it is so spot on. Right? I just want the money up front. Because it's so exhausting being, being dependent on you. Right? It's so like, I don't like trusting you. Because I don't really trust you. Because I just, just, can we just, can I just have it? Can it just be resolved? Can the solution just come? He's like, you want him to provide so you don't have to trust him anymore. And I think that that's probably what's going on with David. He's like, enough of this. Like, you've been faithful for decades, but just, I got it. I want this, and I don't want to trust you anymore. I think that's what's going on here. And here's what's so terrifying about that, is if that's right, and that's what David's doing wrong, is that not something that I do wrong all the time? Like, don't you just want the money up front? Don't you just want the resolution now? God uh, yeah, I don't know why he's exactly like this, but God loves faith. He has built the salvation on the world, of the world, on faith. He wants us to trust him. And when David, I think that David is moving into a place of, I don't want to trust you anymore. Because I want to trust in my money. I want to trust in my steel. I want to just, I don't want to trust you. God is like absolutely not having it. Just absolutely not. And he moves with alacrity to like, we're going to clear the table on this. Like absolutely not. And then he offers David three options. Okay, so take a look at what he does. No more, no more, we're not doing this. And then he says, where are we at? He says, uh, so they, they do the count and that's all fine. And what's that verse? Yeah, we'll start, I'll get 10. David was conscious stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, O oh Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a very foolish thing. And before David got up the next morning, don't you wish that was the end of it? That'd be, that'd be great. Like, and we're good here. Thank you, David. But before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. Okay. First, why do you think he sends someone to talk to David when he so frequently speaks directly to David? Like, wouldn't you feel like if you had, like, prophetic gifting as David does, you wouldn't need a prophet? Just be like, just talk to me. But instead, he sends somebody. What's up with that? Chris? Yes. That's a great application of this principle that he is, he, David has been, ex, if we're right here, David is exercising a lack of faith 
and God is going to bring back. Okay, now you're going to have to trust a little bit. We're going to re- rebuild this. I think that's a very good answer. Zach, are you going to add to that? Yes, yes. That's right. Absolutely. So sometimes God speaks straight to David, but it, this is not a unique thing. God will routinely send other people to David, particularly when the message needs to kind of get through in a pointed way. For a couple of hands. Catherine? Yeah. Somebody else knows what's going on. Yeah, that's a good word. Lily, did you want to add anything, or do we already hit your stuff? We're good. Okay, okay, so he does. And then here's the options, verse 13. So Gad went to David, and he said to him, Shall there come upon you three years of famine in your land, or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over and decide how I should, how I should answer the one who sent me. What do you do with that? God's like, we're going to judge you. you got three options. Three years of famine, three months of fleeing from your enemies, which, by the way, you know a lot about that. You've done that for years. Or three days of plague. Is it obvious to you what you would pick? What is, da- what is David's response? He only eliminates one option. He says this. Look at verse 14. David says to Gad, I'm in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord. For his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into the hands of men. And so what is that? What is he eliminating? Yeah, the three-month options off the table. He's like, ah, I'll, I'll cross this one off, right? It still leaves, could be plague, still could be famine. These are the things that are going to be directed by the Lord, and the Lord sends the plague. I think it's a pretty brilliant response. And what's, what's good about it, what, well, what, what's good and encouraging about that? Say, say it louder, Robin. Yeah. Dave, Robin is saying David has humbled his heart. And I like the fact that just a minute ago, he was putting all his trust in men, right? Because it's going to be, we're going to count the men that we have to go fight wars, perhaps in a distancing himself from trusting the Lord. But now he's like, I don't trust people. They're evil. So Lord, I'll just place myself at your mercy. And that's that shows he's, He's coming back around, and he does, okay? Now, we've only got just a couple minutes. I'm not going to have time to unpack this. I want you to, I'm moving quickly because I want you to see something. This is so interesting. Look at verse 15. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. Holy smokes. That's a lot of people. It's a horrible plague, right? And when the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, The Lord was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough, withdraw your hand. And the angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Okay, you guys, I wish we had more time. This is is a phenomenon that shows up repeatedly in the Bible where God sends judgment because he is just. And then, or even in the midst of it, he has an emotional response to the people that are suffering. You see it over and over again. There's this fantastic scene in the book of Judges where he's, God is so fed up with the fickleness of the people of God. They're just so quick to turn away from him and to run and to worship false gods again. And finally God gets to the point, after, you can look this up, chapter 8, 9. Somebody look it up if you want to, if you care. But uh, 
where God finally, like, that's it, I'm done. Man, when, the, when, you, when, I, when I rescued you and called out to you, you went back to the Ammonites, the Amorites, the Amalekites, all the ites, and it's over and over again. I'm tired of it. No more. We're done. Like, br- bring the rain. And the people are so miserable to be under his judgment once again that they cry out and they say, you're right, you're right, you're right. We blew it. Do whatever you think best, but rescue us. And it says that God was moved by their entreaty. God has an emotional response to their suffering. The same thing with Manasseh. If you guys know Manasseh's story, Manasseh is told dirtbag. He burns his children alive in this pit, offering his children to Molech. And God puts a hook in his nose and drags him away. And Manasseh, in his misery, is brought to the lowest spot by the judgment of God. And he cries out. And again, God is moved to pity the one that he is judging. That's what we're seeing happening right here. God is pouring out his wrath and he is moved to pity because he is endlessly just and he is endlessly gracious. And this, there is a storm in the heart of God. And right here, at a curiously specific spot, the judgment stops. Now, what's the spot? Okay, yes, but we're not yet. What's it, what is, how, does, how, is, how is it identified here? The threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Watch this. This is so interesting. The threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Go to Second Chronicles chapter 3. So 2 Chronicles 3, 1. Listen to this. This is so interesting. There are at least three, yay, maybe four things that happen right here on this spot. Second Chronicles 3, 1. You guys there? It says, Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to his father David. And it was on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite, the place provided by David. Okay, so this space here, Aruna, uh, Aruna's threshing floor is on Mount Moriah and Mount Moriah is where they're going to build the temple. The place where the sacrifice is offered that will save the people from their sins is this same location. And it's one other location. What else happened on Mount Moriah? Abraham, where Abraham goes and he offers his son Isaac, right? And God provides a substitute so that Isaac doesn't have to die, so another one can die in his place. That is Mount Moriah. So there's this literal physical place in the world where one of the clearest prefigurements of the death of the Messiah is Mount Moriah. That's where this happens. And God says, I myself will provide a lamb, right? Then the threshing floor is where this judgment stops and God's mercy overwhelms his justice. And then the temple is going to be built there. This is the place where the judgment of God will be absorbed so the people can be made safe. And then, and there is honestly controversy, and I don't know, right? Do you know what else happens at or very near that spot? Like within yards, within like... Do you know what else? The, the crucifixion of Christ, right? Now, there is controversy about this. We know that Jesus, this, this temple, in Jesus' day, that temple is inside the city. It's in Jerusalem. And we know that Jesus was crucified outside the city. But he was crucified right outside the city. Probably Golgotha is, at the very least, on the same mountain range as Mount Moriah. It is that same mount. And it would be 
less than a mile at best, right, uh, of a different spot, but it might actually be the same, the same place. The walls of the city changed over different times. The location of the temple may have even changed over different times, and we don't know. It's, it's not necessarily the case that, that Jesus' crucifixion is on the same spot, but it was very, very close to it. The Abraham offering his son, the Arun, Arunas, you know, the plague stopping there, the building of the temple, and then maybe even at or very close to it, the crucifixion of Christ. There is something about this place. This is the physical location where God in his mercy stops the judgment of the people. And what's so interesting, I think, about that, and we have to stop talking, is that this whole thing, we've been studying David's life because we want to learn to read narrative. We want to see how the whole thing points to Christ. And it, it does. The whole story here, once again, as we've seen over and over again, there are aspects of David's life, facets of his mode of being that are curiously like what God would do through Jesus Christ. He is the one who, in his life and in his manner, becomes the template for Messiah. Even up to this very last kind of climactic moment where this is the space in David's life at this particular place where God stops the judgment. And our hope, all of our hope, is that the judgment of God poured out against us, our use, our love of bad things and broken things, would be stopped. Because if we fall into that judgment, all is lost. And we will be destroyed. But he is mercifully and graciously not merely just, but he is also tender and merciful and moved by our suffering. Our great hope is that the true and the greater David who would come from this time but has come from ours will be our protection. That in him, your judgment will be arrested. Which is why it says that he, blessed are all who take refuge in him. He does come. Jesus comes. He is, God is a consuming fire. But he's built space, a place that we who have no right to be safe can be made safe in him. And that's ultimately what, what, what David is doing for us, okay? So we've got to stop. Next week, we'll try to recap some of this. We'll probably try to wrap up the story of David. Um, thank you for your months of kind attention. We'll talk later.